And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor did they light a lamp and put it under a a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him Give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. 
But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said you shall not you should you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i shall but i say to you love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of the of your father in heaven for you may makes for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward have you do not even the tax collectors do this do the same and if you greet your brethren only that what do you do more than others do not even the tax collectors do so Therefore, you shall be perfect and no, perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anyone in here enjoy reading a good book? I, I enjoy uh Obviously, apart from the book, uh, I enjoy reading uh, a good book. You know, I was thinking about what, what it is that makes up a good book, and there's, there, there's something about the, the opening lines, the beginning paragraphs of a new book. The introduction seems to be the, the, the gateway, if you will, into the content of the book. It, it sets the stage for, for what's to come. And in literary terms, the the author paints a picture, provides the setting for which the main characters interact and the plot develops and heightens to one or more climactic events in the story. The introduction draws you into the story and helps you see what's going on. A well-written introduction has a voice and that voice speaks a clear message about what's happening. The voice introduces you to the life of certain individuals in the context of their everyday lives. You get to have a look and see in the lives of these people that you're meeting. 
The voice communicates what is common through the lens of the characters that reside within the pages of that book. And you as an outsider, you're given a glimpse into their normal life as you take this book in your hand and you begin reading the opening pages. Some of you might recall that introduction. It was the best of times. What's the next part? It was the worst of times. If you continue reading that paragraph, you see these contrasts. That's the whole first paragraph, these contrasts. And the author is painting a picture right at the beginning. As I was thinking about the Word of God and thinking about specific books that have been preserved for us in the Scripture, I thought about what a great introduction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Or how about this one? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Sets the stage for John's gospel. And there are many others. I was thinking about Job chapter 1, the first six verses. I was thinking about Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3. Just jumps right into the different kind of introduction, but definitely gives you a picture of what's happening. Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 4. Even Revelation chapter 1, the first three verses. Today, we pick up part 2 of an introduction Jesus gives while teaching his disciples and the great multitudes who had gathered to hear Jesus speak. Seeing the multitudes, the text says, chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He takes a seat and he begins to teach as one who had authority. The word that repeats in the opening lines of his message is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Here at the beginning of his message, the king pronounces his blessing on those who at first glance are not the ones deserving of such kingly blessing and approval. So in some ways, the introduction here in verses 1 through 12 provides a window into the nature and character of this king named Jesus. It tells us what he deems to be important in his kingdom. It it speaks of details that characterize one of his subjects in the kingdom. And it immediately puts his listener in a frame of questioning because what he has been living, what he has seen all around him to be the case, it looks a lot different than the life being described by the king. In verses 1 through 12. And so right up, the, right up front, the listener, the reader, is confronted with the question of who am I going to listen to? Really, this is a question we can go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Remember, Eve was questioning whose voice she was going to listen to. The, the introduction to the sermon puts on display the kind of attitudes necessary to shape and form and mold the child of the king. These are not the only attitudes. I think it's important that we get this. These attitudes are, are not only necessary to enter into the kingdom, but these are attitudes necessary to continue living in his kingdom. 
The attitudes and character called for here are not simply to get in, church. They serve as a foundational guide for living as a child of the king. If we content ourselves with what it takes to get in, what do I need to do to get in? First of all, we're asking the wrong question, I, I believe. If that's all that we're interested in, what do I need to do to get in? If we have no concern about how to live as a child of the king right now, and perhaps we've missed the intent of the king's message. Perhaps we've missed the intent of living life in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, as we went through Acts, we saw that the disciples were told to wait. They were told to wait for what? For the power. And upon receiving the power then, they were to be what? Witnesses to Jesus. They had something that they were supposed to do. They had a mission they were to carry out. And it involved being a witness to Jesus. He didn't just immediately take them into heaven. There's work. There's something for us to do right now as a child of the king, as the Lord gives us breath and time here on this earth. So, with your Bibles open, let's continue listening as the king introduces us to what it means to live as one of his subjects. I would encourage you to ask of the Holy Spirit to teach you how to apply what you hear and where course corrections need to be made. Let's be willing to make those. Where repentance of sin needs to take place, let's see that we walk in obedience in this manner. Where a conflict perhaps arises over what the king says and over what my current reality is. Let's allow the king's word to win the day. Amen? Let's allow the king's word to win the day. Abandon what you might think is okay and replace it with the truth that is in Jesus, Ephesians 4.21. The truth that is in Jesus. That's the truth we want. Have an ear to hear what the king says. So let's look at Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And approval of the king is put forth for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is righteousness? I hope you ask that question. Because, you see, it would be good to know what that is if, as a child of the king, I'm supposed to hunger and thirst for it. Amen? That's what we need to ask. What is it? As we shared last week, give some handles or some definitions. Talked about how righteousness sets us apart as being converted. Righteousness simply means this idea of living right, living under God's standards, living by His definition. It's, it's a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. So this righteousness, how do, how do we get this? How do we obtain this? What's this look like? Well, the Bible, I believe, is very clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. F familiar verse to many of you. But perhaps we need to read it again in light of what we're talking about here. It says, for God, for he. God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin... To be sin for us. Why? For what purpose? That we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus, in Him. So God's righteousness is, is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God can be found in no other place, church, other than through Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you are relying upon your own good works, your nice deeds, you are leaning on a lie. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. 
Listen to these verses, Paul writes. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. For whom? For Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, my Master, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Notice he's not having a pity party about the fact he's lost all these things. He counts them as rubbish. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So this righteousness comes to us not by works, but by God through faith in Christ. We have the privilege of becoming the righteousness of God only through faith in Christ. The privilege of being covered by God's righteousness through the cross of Jesus Christ. The king is speaking to his disciples about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He's calling them to live under the authority of the king. To, to live by the king's standards. In submission to the king's will. Now on the surface, this might seem a bit obvious. I mean, one who has become the righteousness of God is called to walk in that righteousness. I mean, that makes sense. The pattern of his life is to be one of righteousness, being in Christ. However, what ought to be isn't always necessarily so. For the king to include this right here in Matthew, chapter 5, in his introduction, leads me to believe that the desire called for, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's, it's the prescribed way of the child of the king. That we need to be reminded that this is the prescribed way of the child of the king. I need reminders. I'm sure many of you do too. Right? We need reminders of these things. Let's not take these things for granted. This is the prescribed way for a child of the king. He is to walk in the way of righteousness. Notice the blessing, church, that comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The text says they shall be filled or perhaps satisfied let me ask you this. Have you ever gone without food? I mean, I'm not talking one day stuff. I'm talking about, have you ever gone without food? How about water? I was thinking about that. Do you know what it is really to hunger and thirst? I don't. Not really. I mean, when I'm hungry, I, I can go into the kitchen. I can open up the pantry door. I can pull something out to munch on. If I'm thirsty, I can go into the cabinet and I can take a glass out and I can get some filtered water. I can't recall a time in my life where I was without food or water. I would guess that many here also have a hard time connecting to what it means to hunger and thirst. You know, we live in an affluent society. And if anything, we have too much food and water. We have too many options. You go to a grocery store and that becomes very 
obvious. Food is accessible. Water is accessible. A lack of food is not the issue for many of us. Not many of us here are hungering and thirsting from a physical standpoint. But to hear the king speak of the object of our hungering and thirsting, to desire righteousness, to crave righteousness, to pursue righteousness, that's what the king is calling for. He's pointing to the top shelf priority of a child of the king. He's to hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, not only do we have a hard time connecting with what it means to hunger and thirst, but we also seem to have a hard time connecting to what it means to desire righteousness. You see, this beatitude is speaking to a desire, a drive, a motive for the child of God. Don't misunderstand. I believe many here Desire to be witnesses for the Lord. I believe many here desire to be a Christ follower. I believe many here desire to be found faithful to the King. Intellectually, you embrace what this word says. But the disconnect happens in the course of life. The disconnect happens when other things crowd in and influence your living in a different direction. Remember the parable of the sower? It talks about one of those seeds. And the word gets choked by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. I was reminded of the end of 1 John. 1 John 5 verse 21 says, Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. I'd like you to consider that verse in light of the purpose for 1 John, which we see in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So writing to the believer in Jesus, John is assuring the believer of his eternal life in Christ. And yet he concludes his epistle with, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he end the letter that way? And and how is this statement instructive for the child of the king called to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Idols, church, turn your eyes from the king. Idols steal a portion of our hearts. We spoke a couple weeks ago on Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all diligence. Idols build these siege ramps on our mind. They can rob the joy that you once had in Christ. They can transfer that joy to some other object. They can dominate our thinking. And I remember several years ago, this very thing was true in my own life. At the time, I remember it didn't seem to be that big of a deal. I enjoyed playing fantasy baseball and fantasy football and fantasy basketball. Used to get together with a group of guys each week, talk sports. Let me tell you what it did to me. I thought about it all the time. I thought about it all the time. I wanted to win the thing, and so I wanted to do it well. And so I'd be consumed with who won the game. I'd be consumed with how are my players doing. I'd be consumed with what trades do I need to make? What player do I need to pick up? And you know now, far removed from that time, it's easy to see. The name of it should have been a a clue 
fantasy football. I didn't coach anybody. I didn't win anything. I didn't do anything great, grand. Living out of fantasy. Some of you young people, I'd like to talk with you for just a moment. The king is calling you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's difficult to justify fantasy, football, baseball, basketball, whatever. When the king has called for your desires and appetites and motives to be in his direction. Some of you know and can quote more stats than you can scriptures. You know more sports facts than you do Bible facts. See, the ebb and the flow of your life, they get, they get wound up in, the, in a fantasy game. Meanwhile, the king's watching. He sees you come into his house on Sunday, and he knows how you've been spending your time Monday through Saturday. He knows where your heart is. He knows what your treasure is. They go together as we'll come to see when we get to Matthew chapter 6. And maybe you're sitting here today and you don't play those fantasy games. But maybe you've invested your time elsewhere. Your mind is consumed with it. What is it? You know. What is it? Internet? Things you shouldn't be looking at on the internet? Work? Favorite hobby? Seeing that your child gets the finest education? Some of these are not bad things. But they ought not be the driving motivators for our living, church. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And hunger and thirst for righteousness. Some of you may be sitting here and going, that sounds kind of boring. Does, does that sound boring to you? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A life pursuing righteousness. A life conformed to the pattern of Christ's teaching. If it sounds boring, there's probably, that's probably in and of itself an indicator that something's wrong with your heart. Is the king delivering a message here in the text to hold you back from the good life? Is that what he's doing? Depends on what you think the good life is. Depends on how you might define that good life. If the good life, if by that you mean sowing seeds to the flesh, then yes, the king is speaking against that kind of life. But if by the good life you mean sowing seeds to the spirit of Christ in you, then this message will make good sense. In fact, the scriptures are filled with encouragement for us in this regard to walking and living in the way of righteousness. Romans 6.13 do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Romans 6, 19. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So righteousness connected to holiness, being set apart. When we're set apart, we don't participate in Fantasy games? Or whatever that it is that you thought of earlier? That consumes so much of your time? 
Remember in Acts 17, Paul speaking to the Areopagus, and he says, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. Here's how he's going to judge. Here's the, here's the gauge. Here's the means. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By the man whom he has ordained. That would be Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, chapter 11. But you, O man, flee these things and pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. A partner verse, 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue. Flee these things, pursue these things. What's the first thing on the list? Righteousness. But here's an additional point in 2 Timothy 2 that I like to point out here. We talked about up to this point, pursuing righteousness in your own individual life. But 2 Timothy 2.22 brings this out as a part of the body. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Here it is. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We are to pursue righteousness with the body. Together. This is not just something we do as individuals. Something we are called to be doing together as children of the king. Walking in the way of righteousness. And I love these three verses in 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. It's easy to tell who is born of him because they practice it. They exercise it. 1 John 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. In 1 John 3.10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. The word said that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They're promised satisfaction. They shall be filled. See, when your desire and your appetite is for righteousness, he will continue to satisfy. I love the proverb 15, verse 15. He who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. It just keeps on going. You see, we oftentimes satisfy our physical hunger and thirst with a meal. And we get down on full. But the hungering and thirsting of righteousness spoken of here by the king is ongoing. Instead of your hunger being quenched in a moment, it's an ongoing desire. And in fact, I believe that the more you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the greater your desire for Christ. The more you begin to see how spiritually poor you really are, the more you mourn over your sin that so easily entangles, the more you practice meekness, advancing the needs of others ahead of your own. Proverbs 13, 25 says, The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul. Proverbs eleven eighteen says, The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. You will have a sure reward. You shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This here denotes not only mercy to the guilty, one writer said, but pity for the suffering and help to the needy. I believe up front we need to be clear about this one. The text is not saying that if you are merciful to someone, then you shall obtain mercy from the standpoint of being saved. Let's, let's be real clear on this. Your salvation is not based on any merit of your own. You can't compile enough merit for God's salvation. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you were saved. So, so the blessing given here to the child of the king is, is a reminder. See, having been saved by God's mercy, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, which flows out of his great love, Ephesians 2 verse 5. And it pours forth, that mercy brings forth his forgiveness of your sins, Matthew 18, 27. Puts those together, mercy and forgiveness. This mercy, just to have a general handle... 
not getting what you deserve. The Bible says that I deserve death because of my sin. The wages of my sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. But mercy says you're not going to get what you deserve. Mercy arrives on the heels of grace. You see, grace is the groundwork upon which mercy is given. Grace includes the storehouse of riches. I'm reminded when I think of grace of Ephesians chapter 1. Mercy is not getting hell, eternal separation from Christ. The very thing I deserve because of the sin in my life. You see, God is just... That's another term that goes right alongside mercy. God is just to send each one to hell because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet in His grace, He showers us with undeserved blessings. In His mercy, He withholds, He refrains from carrying out toward us the just penalty for our sins. But you see, justice demands penalty, demands payment for the penalty of sin. Justice demands it. Mercy is on the other side of justice. See, we need to understand that God's justice is not compromised when his mercy is poured out. This God that we serve, church, he is a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of grace, a God of justice, a God of wrath. He is all of that and more. None of those, when he decides he's going to implement them in our lives, he's not unjust at any one moment for carrying out any one of those character traits because that's who he is. You see, God took on the just payment for your sin through his perfect substitute, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. We talk about that, that substitutionary atonement. Christ was the substitute for the penalty of sin that you had in your life, I had in my life. It needed to be paid for. And God took care of that. He did it on the cross. You see, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And if, as if that's not enough, he also gave to us his son's perfect righteousness. He graced us. He gave us a gift. We didn't deserve it. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, you see the parable there, the story. Matthew 18, 21 to 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I'd just like to draw your attention to verse 27. The master of that servant who owed him more than he was able to, to pay. He couldn't pay this back. 10,000 talents. That's, that's, a, that's a number. There's no way he was going to pay that back. Verse 26 says, the servant fell down. Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Notice compassion does something. When you find compassion in the scripture, compassion is typically followed up by some kind of action. So here, compassion, what happened? What did he do? He released him, and then what did he do? Forgave him the debt. He forgave him the debt. What about the parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10? In, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Remember that? Jesus concludes the parable of the Good Samaritan with these words. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. You see, the Samaritan in that story and not the Jew is the one held up for doing what is right. He takes pity on the man suffering by the road and sacrifices his time and his money to care for this man. 
See, the one who has been shown mercy in Christ. Taken with the other attitudes expressed in the king's message here in Matthew chapter 5. It's because of what the king has done for us and because of the work he's done in us that we can extend mercy toward one another. Just as we are called to be holy because he is holy. So too, we are called to be merciful because Christ himself is, a, as we sing, a wonderful, merciful Savior. That's who he is. He is a merciful high priest, the Hebrew writer says. Let me ask you a few questions. Are, are you a loving person? Are you showing, do you tend to show mercy toward those who are guilty? Do you show pity toward those who are suffering? Are you ready and available to help the needy? How quick are you to offer forgiveness? As a child of the king, let me remind you of the depth of God's forgiveness extended to you through Jesus Christ. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I share a story, practical mercy. I was guilty yesterday. No, I didn't commit a crime. I had my, uh, my first basketball game of the season. The tip time was scheduled for 10 a.m. I left the house around 6.30, needing to arrive by 8.45 in the morning. I was meeting the two other guys I was working with up there at the school. And I called one of them on the phone just before... I got to the school, let them know I'm just around the corner. And as I hung up the phone, I pulled into the, to the, to the school. And the realization there that I was at the wrong gym flooded over me. I'm late. I drove into Grace College and not Bethel College. If any of you know where Grace is and you know where Bethel is, you know that I wasn't necessarily all that close. I reset the GPS as quickly as I could. Bethel College. Within speed limit. I got on the phone, called my partners. I told them I'm not pulling into the the school. And I greatly apologized. Said, I'll call you back. We'll have a little pregame over the phone. I called my assigner who assigned me the game and had to tell him what happened. You know what? Those aren't fun phone calls, are they? So I take off. I arrived at Bethel College about 18 minutes before the game. It's about 9.42. At least I thought it was Bethel College. You see, after driving around for a moment, another one of those moments of dread came over me because... This was not the Bethel College that I was looking for. This was Bethel College at Elkhart. I had no idea there was a Bethel College in Elkhart. I can't tell you this feeling of, oh, just, I had all kinds of things swirling. swirling. I called my signer back. He, jo- he, 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 he was joking a little bit over the phone because he was actually there at the gym, my last phone call with the guys. Said something about, so you want me to, to be the referee in your place? And we kinda, he kinda, I, was, he, I was glad to hear he was at least joking. But when I called him back, I said, you know what, you may need to be the referee. Because he's like, what happened? I said, I, I went to Bethel College, but I, I went, I'm in Elkhart. I'm, I'm still 15 miles away. Mishawaka is like at the top of the map in Indiana. So I take off. I set it for Bethel of Mishawaka. 
I get to the gym. I don't know, it's 10 after, 12 after, 10. Remember, the game started at 10. I got my bag, got out of the car, walked toward the gym, and my signer said he would meet me at the door, help me get in the locker room. And I bring all this story up for this, this reason. The Lord taught me something yesterday. As bad as I felt in the middle of it, the Lord taught me something. And he reminded me of his mercy and he reminded me of his grace. Because you see, what I really deserved because of what I did yesterday, I deserved to, to just be taken off the, my games. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a new guy. I'm just starting out the college game. And here I am, I, I didn't even show up time. I didn't show up, I didn't show up at all by game time. And it's my own fault. I don't have anybody to blame but me. So I'm, I got my bag. I'm walking up to Jim. He's there. He comes out. And here's what he did. He had a smile on his face. He shook my hand. And he said, it's good to see you. I can't tell you how that felt. Because inside, I'm thinking what I knew, what I, knew I deserved. I deserve not to have the games. I deserve, not, I deserve to be taken off all the rest of my games. The story gets better. Last night, I get an email from my signer. He gives me another college game. And immediately when I got the game, it was a reminder of God's grace. Because you know what? I didn't deserve another game. But he gave it to me. Maybe as a somewhat humorous note, perhaps he gave me the game because th this particular game that he gave me was at Bethel. So perhaps he's going to give me another chance to make a trip to Bethel and get the right Bethel, the real Bethel now. Church, I say that and I share that story with you to remind you of there are times in our lives that we go through things, we don't deserve things, and we get God's abundant blessing. Praise him for those times. That's his grace. That's his mercy at work through the lives of other people. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Look at verse 8. We're just about done. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a what? Pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. There we go. An idol. Nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. That's right, according to Matthew 5, 3, he's going to be able to see God. <laughs> the pure in heart reserve themselves for the Lord, church, and his purposes. The pure in heart are set apart. Holiness matters to them. The scripture connects the pure in heart with standing in his holy place. Clean hands, pure heart. A heart that has made no room for rival loves. It's as though our heart has this do not enter sign for something that would endeavor to take a part or a portion of our heart. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? I believe the inference here is no one can. writer as he's describing this particular beatitude he says we can be earnest Christians who do at some level hunger for God but if we are to pursue purity of heart we must honestly admit that we hunger for so many other things besides God our souls are divided by competing desires desires that are so often selfish in nature Purify your hearts, you double-minded, urged the Apostle James in chapter 4, verse 8 of James. 
referring to the spiritual split that divides us within ourselves and from others in the Christian community. It goes on and says, if we are to know God's blessing, we must resist the enticements of a world that wants to multiply desire and divide our hearts. The world wants us to be anxious about our incompleteness and need. And Jesus wants us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We'll get to that in Matthew 6. A world that wants to multiply desire and divide our hearts. Jesus is called his children to hunger and thirst, to desire his righteousness. And he calls us to oneness of heart. That together as children of the king, we pursue his desires with singleness of heart. The, the idea of the word pure has in mind this, I, this concept of, of something that's unmixed. One who is pure in heart practices what John says in his first epistle. Chapter 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For here it is. For we shall see him. As he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The writer says, in light of that passage in 1 John, that the Christian purifies himself now because pure is what he will ultimately be. His present efforts are consistent with his future hope. So how are you purifying yourself? Have you seen the pure in heart as something that only certain Christians do? Young people, the pure in heart are not reserved for adults alone. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, the scripture says. But set an example for the believer. In what? 1 Timothy 4.12 In word, in conduct, in love, in faith. What's the last one? Purity. Set an example. The elders are not the only ones given the charge to be an example. 1 Peter chapter 5. Be an example in purity. The blessing here in Matthew 5 verse 8 goes forward to those who are pure in heart. Pure on the inside. And I believe that's instructive for us. You see, too many, I believe, seek to construct a purity that remains on the outside. It's a purity not in heart, but on the exterior. I wonder if the church has taken a cue from the Pharisaical crowd, tried to dress herself up to look good when she gathers on a Sunday morning. Nothing against wearing nice clothes, but it's exaltation of the exterior and a minimizing or even perhaps a hiding of what's on the inside. Cameron Lee writes in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Some people in turmoil at home would rather stay away from church than let anyone see how badly they're struggling. They follow what seems to be an unspoken but tacitly understood 11th commandment. Thou shalt put on thy best appearance in front of other Christians. He goes on and says the problem isn't that Christians do things they shouldn't. The problem comes when Christians try to create an impression of cleanliness by hiding the dirt. Where the 11th commandment rules, public and private lives become split. People play nice when others are watching and quietly agree not to pry too far into each other's private affairs. He says, we don't want people to know the truth about us. We don't even want to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. Religion then becomes a way to fine-tune our self-image, to affirm to ourselves and others that we are really nice people, or at least try to be, which should count for something. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they alone shall see God. Do you derive, as you look at the text here in Matthew 5a, do you derive any motivation to have a pure heart knowing that the result, the reward in the text is, for they shall see God. They shall see God. That's what it says. 
Does seeing God, does the thought of being with Jesus, does that drive you to live with a pure heart, to have an audience with the king? We've been reading a biography, a Donnerham Judson, wonderful biography. And I remember the part where he's in Burma and he's, he's, he's been called to the king and he notices and, and as he's with the king that all these people who are around the king, they're like groveling on the ground. They're not even standing up. The awe and the fear of the king. I was reminded in the Bible of Esther. Remember Esther? You see, Esther understood that going in to the presence of the king could cost her her, her life. If she wasn't called in. And she was the queen. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of respect to come before the king. Think about entering into the presence of the king of kings. The king. This king whom you've been enslaved to in this life. And I say that with all joy. Enslaved to. That's a term. Talks about slave. Romans. Paul talks about that. One day you're going to see him as he is. Here, we see in a mirror, the Bible says, right? Dimly. But then, face to face. Revelation 22, 4. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. Where's your heart today, church? Do you long to be filled Do you long to obtain this mercy? Do you long to see God? The king's just getting started. He's just getting started. He still has a lot to say. But what follows from verse 13 forward flows out of the attitudes found in verses 1 through 12. Anger, adultery, divorce, loving your enemies, giving, fasting, prayer, all this stuff is yet to come. But when you receive Jesus' teaching through the lens of verses 1 through 12, it all starts to come into focus. The introduction of this message is preparing us for an exciting climax yet to come and yet calls us even now to participate, to walk in this way as a child of the king. I like the way this ends today. The text ends giving us a picture of seeing God. I believe a fitting way to end the message. With our eyes upon God. With the hope. As Titus writes about. Looking for that blessed hope. Glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a song. Be thou my vision. O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me. Say that thou art. Thou art my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping. Thy presence, my light. Let's stand. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this introduction the kingdom living that you've given to us. Oh, Father, may we be diligent to hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we desire to be filled in an ongoing way, to be filled, to be satisfied with your righteousness. Father, I pray that we would desire to obtain that mercy that you speak of, that we would ourselves be merciful and that we would understand that carrying out what that mercy looks like only happens because of the mercy that you gave toward us and saving us. And Father, I pray that we would desire to see you. We long for that and look forward to that in the days yet to come. But even now, Lord, I pray that we would be practicing this purity of heart, that we would practice being pure because you are pure. That we would practice what it means to be pure because there's going to be a day when we will be pure. I pray, Lord, you would help us to begin that and continue that even right now. 
that we would practice those very things. Father, I pray we would be found faithful to you. That we would desire above all things to walk in the way of righteousness that you've given. This path of righteousness. That we would find ourselves joyfully submitting ourselves, delighting to the will of the King. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.